I'll read 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We praise you, Holy Father, for your wonderful scripture that gives life to the dead, that gives wisdom to the foolish, that gives freedom to the enslaved. Oh, Holy Father, I praise you for this morning. I praise you for a wonderful time where we united our voice in the praise and glory of you. What a joy. And Lord, we're uniting our hearts to hear your truth. Oh Lord, may your word go forth with power to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord God, use your servant Josh. Lord, may he be a channel of your truth. Father, empower him. And Lord, give us joy in hearing your wonderful word and give him joy in presenting it. We praise you, Holy King. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. You know, when uh, somebody accidentally hit the keys there, the organ sound, I was like, I think I need someone up here doing that while I'm preaching. You know, when I make a good point, they can, I'm, I'm joking. No, I'm joking. You guys have seen that before, haven't you? Um, that's not my style. <laughs> uh, this isn't going to be a typical Father's Day message. Last week, we, uh, we jumped into the book of 1 Timothy, and uh, this morning's text is a challenging one. It's one that, um, it's a piercing one. But I believe, I have full confidence that all of God's word is good to make all of us whole Christians. I think it was A.W. Tozier who said the whole Bible makes whole Christians. And so this is going to be one of those texts. And I just want to do a little bit of um, work to remind you of why this book was written, the purpose of Paul in writing this. The opening verses, I think, are very telling as to why Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it out of a deep concern. He wrote this letter, of course, to Timothy, who was a protege of Paul's. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy for him to remain in the city of Ephesus and to deal with some problems there. Um, Paul had invested a lot of time in the church at Ephesus. Just a matter of five years prior to Paul writing this letter, he was ending a three-year stay in Ephesus where he taught, in his own words, night and day with tears. Day and night with tears. For three years, he, he, he taught in the school of Tyrannus for hours a day. He had been there three years teaching, laboring, 
even with tears, he says. The ministry of Paul was so effective and fruitful that um, the idol-making trade was going out of business, or at least wasn't a free fall. Free fall. People were being converted at such a clip that there was a steep drop in the need for idols. People didn't want them anymore. They didn't need them anymore. They were turning from those idols to God. They had found the true and living God, or, or better yet, he had found them. In addition to this, the church at Ephesus was probably a kind of command center for the evangelism of all of Asia Minor. This was a very, very important church and a very strategic city. And so Paul is concerned about what's happening there. Paul had labored to establish this church and see this church built and strong. Near the end of his three-year stay in Ephesus, Paul gathered the elders and pastors of this church He gathered them together for some parting words. And you can feel the emotion that Paul has in these words. In Acts 20, we see this instruction that he gives to them. And the heart of it, I think, starts in verse 28, where Paul says this. This is him talking to the pastors of the church at Ephesus. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen to what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to teach you and admonish you with tears. Paul's prediction came true. In only five years, false teachers had arisen in this church. They were in the church, possibly even elders in the church. And they were speaking twisted things and drawing disciples after them. And some people's faith was being shipwrecked. It's not a small thing. It's not a minor issue. So Paul writes out of this deep concern that the truth be preserved, the truth that God had given, that the deposit of divine revelation be guarded, that the people be protected from strange and false doctrine. And we see this throughout the letter. We see this this come out throughout the letter and Later in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul laments that some have made shipwreck of their faith. This is in the church at Ephesus. Later in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, For some have already strayed after Satan. And then the letter ends this way. This is is how Paul ends this letter to Timothy. He says, oh, Timothy. This is the last verse of the letter. Oh, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The good deposit of divine revelation that Paul had given him. No doubt that included the Old Testament. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 
Guys, this is relevant in every age. Brothers and sisters, we have been given a deposit of divine truth in the scriptures. It is precious and we are called to guard it. Which doesn't mean hide it from people, right? We're not guarding it so people don't see it. But we're guarding it from being diminished, brushed aside as unimportant. We're guarding it from being changed, whether it's adding to it or taking away from it. We're guarding it from being perverted. And I would suggest this is the main thrust of the book of 1 Timothy. Of course, there's a lot of practical things we're going to cover, but this is kind of the main thrust. This is why Paul wrote the letter to Timothy. Guard the deposit. It's always under attack. And even just a cursory look at church history underscores this point. It's always under attack. To be sure, there are some who are on an island by themselves because they can't find anyone who agrees on every point of doctrine with them. There are people like that. And that's really bad. But I would suggest that's not the main problem we suffer with today. I think it's more like everything goes today. Whatever you believe is fine. As long as maybe you can find a Bible verse somewhere that maybe kind of affirms that. We live in a time where many professing Christians have little or no definite opinions about any doctrine. J.C. Ryle, he died in 1900, so sometime before that, he said, he described some Christians as they're like jellyfish. He said they believe that everybody's right and nobody's wrong. Everything is true and nothing is false. Every sermon is good and none are bad. Every minister is sound and none are, are unsound. Paul didn't believe that. Paul did not believe that at all. Paul comes out swinging in the opening words of this letter. Paul says to, Th- to Timothy, Timothy, tell certain men, and I think they knew who, at least some of them, tell certain men to stop teaching strange doctrine. Tell them to knock it off. That's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> That's pretty direct. Tell them to stop. And there's a reason for Paul's directness. And it's the same today. It's the reason why we have to be direct today. Strange doctrines hurt people. Bad, false doctrine, false teaching hurts people. Richard Baxter, was a, he was a Puritan. Um, he wrote a book called the Reformed Pastor, and I was trying to find the exact quote. I couldn't find it, but he said something like this. A man may go to hell because of heresy just as he may go to hell because of unrepented sin. John Piper, years ago, I heard him say something. I'm not going to get exactly right, but I'll get the essence of it right. He said, bad, bad doctrine hurts people, and it hurts people in proportion to its badness. And we've all known people who have believed bizarre things, claim to be Christian, but believe some weird things. And, and as they continued to veer in that direction, we saw it hurting them, harming them. This was Paul's concern. And I think it's a concern we ought to have. I don't mean that we are always you know, chewing our nails, anxious, 
but it's, it's something that ought to be on our minds. It's something that we ought to be concerned about. If a church that drank from the pure spring of the apostolic teaching of Paul for three years could get off track, we would be foolish to think it could never happen to us. <clears throat> and I mean individually, as a family, your family, my family, as a church. So this is Paul's burden, but I want to put a finer point on it. This is the Spirit's burden. Paul is being carried along or was being carried along by the Spirit as he wrote this. These words are God's words. These are the Holy Spirit's words. This is his burden. For the sake of God's glory and the souls of men and women and children, we're to guard the good deposit entrusted to us, this treasure of divine truth that God has given to us. So that's, that's why Paul wrote the letter. Now, as we move into verse 8 of our text this morning, Paul wants to draw out an important truth. And we see it in verse 8. Paul says this in verse 8, And we know that the law is good. Did you catch that? The law is good. Just let that settle on you a bit. The law is good. And a, in a place where we sing and we magnify and emphasize, a church like this where we emphasize and magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we're not saved by law-keeping, but we're saved because of Christ's law-keeping and death and resurrection on our behalf, sometimes we can subconsciously think that the law is maybe not good or contrary to God's purposes or contrary to the gospel. It's not. The law is good. Now, of course, Paul qualifies these words, but, but just let it land on you. The law is good. In fact, just say it to yourself. The law is good. The law is good. You can say it out loud too. Okay. The law is good. In fact, this week, along with your New Testament reading, as I'm sure we're all doing together, right? Along with your New Testament reading, read Psalm 119. It's a very long psalm, so just uh, split it up into chunks of 25 or 30 verses a day and uh, read Psalm 119 this week and notice, take special notice to how often the psalmist praises the law. God's commands, God's precepts, God's law. The law is good. Paul says in Romans 7.12, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. The law is good. Now, Again, Paul qualifies this. He doesn't leave it just as the law is good. He says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, there's really bad ways to use the law. And the false teachers that were in Ephesus were apparently doing that. They were using the law in a very inappropriate way. They were perhaps digging into the law to find special hidden meanings of things. And this special knowledge that they were uncovering from the law, from the genealogies in the law, to them was the key to union with Christ or, or union with God. Perhaps they were also using the law in a moralistic way, saying that obedience to the law is the key to being justified before God. That's bad, right? And Paul wanted them to stop doing that. But there are good uses of the law. 
For one, the law serves as a way of showing us what God is like. It shows us his nature and his character, doesn't it? I think of the opening lines of Exodus 20, right before going into the Ten Commandments. God says to Moses, Moses, write this down. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The law shows us what God is like. It shows us his glory, his nature, his character. David said it earlier that God is a jealous God. The law is good in showing us what God is like. Another good use of the law is that it serves as a sort of pattern for the life of the believer. God's moral law is summed up in the ten, summed up in the Ten Commandments is still a pattern for our lives. Would anyone dispute that? Like, I don't know, that one command about adultery, I'm not sure that's a good idea for us anymore since we're Christians. No, it's a pattern for life. It, it pleases God. We're not saved by obedience to the law, but we are saved for obedience to God's moral standards. We're given a new heart. The law is written on our heart and we're saved for obedience to God, given a heart that wants to obey him. We don't always, of course, but we want to and we want to do what pleases him. I think we clearly see that the law is still a pattern, the Ten Commandments is still a pattern for the life of the Christian, in that in the New Testament, all the commandments are are expounded for us in different places in letters written to Christians. Think of Ephesians 6. Kids, you're going to love this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. (laughs) Right? Colossians says it a little differently. He says, says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is pleasing to him. It pleases him. A third use of the law, and I think what's in view here, and this is what the, I think the main point of this text, there is a third use of the law. There, there might be, there's probably others too, that, but there's a third use. That's the main point of our passage here, and it's this, that the law is given to condemn. When I said this message is going to kind of cut a bit. The law is given to condemn. The law is given to condemn the unconverted. The law is given to convict the sleepy and backslidden Christians in order to show them their need for Christ. The law condemns and convicts people by showing them their sin and their guilt before the lawgiver, God. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to read our text, most of it again. Understanding this, so the law is good, provided one use it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers and fathers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul says the law is not laid down for the just. 
Maybe you have a translation that says the righteous. I think New American Standard says the righteous. The law is not laid down for the just or the righteous. I think here it's speaking about those who are saved and justified and who have received the gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. The law is not laid down. The the condemning nature of the law is not laid down for them. But I don't think this is an absolute statement because I've already told you there are other good uses of the law but the point here is, that the, is to draw our attention to the law's power to condemn and to convict. So what Paul does is he says the law is for certain people. And I want everyone here, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this for you. I want you to hear this for friends that you know or have or family members who don't know Christ. This is important for us to understand. The false teachers, it says, they didn't understand the law. They didn't understand the purpose of the law. And Paul says, we understand, or we better understand. So I want you to, I want you to understand this. First, what Paul does is he gives six general statements of certain kinds of people. He says, the law is not for the just, but it's for the lawless. The lawless, those who turn away from God's law, those who want nothing to do with God's law. They hate God's law. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that there's going to be many on that day, the day when, the, the day when we stand before him, that are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And he's going to say, Depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. The law is for the lawless. It's for the disobedient. Maybe your translation says rebellious. Those who are living in high-handed rebellion against God, whether outwardly or in their heart. The law is for them. The law is for the ungodly. Ungodly here means those who are destitute of a reverential awe towards God. This sense of reverence that God is God. This fear of the Lord. Romans chapter 3 gives this litany of, of sins describing the universal sinfulness of all of humanity. And at the very end, I think in, order, in, in a way of summing up All of it, Paul says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No reverence, no awe. The law is for them. The law is for sinners, those who are devoted to their sin. The law is for the unholy, the impious. Piety, we often think of that as a bad word. You know, it's like, oh, that's kind of fuddy-duddy, holier-than-thou people. Piety, I mean, the the word itself is not a bad word. It just means that uh, piety is living before God in the sense that we are obligated to him and have responsibilities before him. The unholy don't want to live like that at all. No responsibilities to God, no obligation to worship him or serve him. And the law is for the profane. Profane, another word is just common or maybe worldly. The laws for the worldly and profane. Then after these general statements, Paul gets pretty darn specific. He gets pretty darn specific. He lists sins, specific sins, and I want you to notice something. These sins pretty clearly mirror 
or reference commands five through nine of the Ten Commandments. The law, Paul says, are, it's, it's for those who strike their mothers and fathers. What's the fifth command? Honor your father and mother. The law is for disobedient children. Fathers, there's some application for today. <laughs> the law is for them, to bring them to Christ, right? The law is for murderers. What's the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. The law is for the sexually immoral. The Greek word here is pornea. That might sound familiar. It's where we get our English word pornography. It's a general word speaking of sexual sin. Could be used to speak of fornication, but it's just a general word. The law is for the sexually immoral. The law is for men who practice homosexuality. I don't think this means it's not for women. I think you can include that too. It's for men and women who practice homosexuality. It's for, for gays and lesbians. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a real effort in our day to try to redefine what the Bible says here. There's a documentary coming out sometime that uh, does a lot of gymnastics, jumping through hoops to show that, well, to try to show that uh, this idea was never in the, uh, in the Bible. It just, it just happened to come in when, like, the New Revised Standard Version was translated in the 1960s or something. The idea goes like this. Well, the, the, the Bible condemns a kind of abusive homosexual relationship, but never the kind of monogamous, committed relationship between two men who are committed to each other, two women committed to each other. But that's fiction. It's not true. The word arsnikoites, translated here, men who practice homosexuality, simply means what men do with other men in bed. Or a man lying with a man as he would with a woman. That's, it's just, that's what it means. And it's universally condemned in the Bible. It's never spoken of positively. God uses, in the Old Testament law, God uses the strongest language to speak of what he thinks about that sin. The law is for men who practice homosexuality. What's the seventh commandment? It deals with sexual sin. You shall not commit adultery. The law is for enslavers, Paul says. Enslavers. What's the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. The worst kind of stealing is to steal a person, isn't it? A human being. And the law is for liars and perjurers. The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Why is it good to use the law in this way? Why is it good to use the law in this way? It's good for this reason, to awaken people to their spiritual guilt and to the coming judgment so that they may flee to Christ as their Savior and Redeemer. Unless people see and feel the sinfulness of sin and the just punishment for their sin, they will never run to Jesus. They won't run to him. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful book called Holiness, said this, those whom the Spirit draws, listen to this, those whom the Spirit draws to Jesus are those whom the Spirit has convinced of sin. Without conviction of sin, men, and you could say women, children, may come to Jesus and follow him for a season, but will soon fall away and return to the world. So listen to what Paul says to lawbreakers, to those that the law speaks to. Romans, five, or excuse me, Romans 2, 5 says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Remember, it's good to use the law in this way. Ephesians 5, 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, these things, sins that we just enumerated here in 1 Timothy 1, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 6 says almost the same thing. It says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The law is given to show people their sin and their condemnation in order to lead them to Christ. Martin Luther said the law is like a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. For it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down and so may long for Christ and his grace. This is why Paul likens the law to a schoolmaster ESV says guardian. I don't like that as much. Some translations say schoolmaster or tutor. The, the law is like a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Without the law's condemning function, people may see Jesus as a good person, as a good teacher. Listen, as a miracle worker to give you what you want. But people will not see him as the one who came into the world to save sinners. And that's what Paul says in the very next text. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says this, of whom, of whom I am the worst. Jesus will not be treasured as the only mediator between God and men who gave himself as a ransom unless we understand the law and our sin. We live in a time when sins are flaunted and celebrated everywhere. Grievous sins. Many of you know, probably everyone here, if you're above the age of 10, I suppose, that June is Pride Month. An entire month in which an abomination in God's sight is thrust upon us and celebrated everywhere. The propaganda is everywhere. If you work in the corporate world, it's probably there. And more and more, if you refuse to celebrate, you will be considered weird, unloving, maybe a bigot, a hater. And in some cases, we've seen even in America, the legal system come barreling down on some who won't go along. In an act of high-handed rebellion, the rainbow, which is 
God's sign, God's promise that he won't destroy the earth with a flood is being used and hijacked and serves as a sign of the pride that people have in their sinful acts before God. On June 1st, a statement was made from the office of our president, which said, quote, today, President Biden issued a proclamation affirming June 2021 as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer pride month. Listen to this. Marking a time of hope, progress, and promise for the LGBT plus citizens of this country. Hope? There's no hope there. Only despair and ultimate destruction. Progress? Maybe toward a cliff, nowhere good. Promise? The only promise God gives is of his certain judgment for those who continue on that path. Brothers and sisters, that statement is evil. It's evil. It's not just unwise or maybe not the best, or it God says it's evil. It is. And many Christians just don't know what to say or do. Or worse, increasingly people have capitulated to the spirit of the age. I'm not sure of all the reasons, but one reason I think is embarrassment of God's law. We've forgotten the law is good and it's good as a hammer to smash self-righteousness. Now listen, our own as well. But it's good to to smash the hammer of self-righteousness, which the the pride flag flying is a sign of rank self-righteousness. And it's good to show people their sin. But I think there's another reason why sometimes we're, 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 we're muted, we're not sure what to say or do, or, or we just, and it's this. Here's another reason. I think it's because we want to be justified by the world. We want the world to like us. We want the world to accept us and be okay with us. We, listen, we want to be justified. But the only justification that matters is to be justified by God. Yeah. Amen? Amen? The only justification that matters is to be justified by God, to be righteous in God's sight. And this only comes when we are honest about our sin, our wretchedness, the wretchedness of our self-righteousness and cowardice, the grotesqueness of our hatred, the stench of our lusts in God's nostrils the jealousies and greed that rage in our hearts. When we are honest with these things, the, the worldliness that, that clings to us like sweat on that 100-degree day last week. When we're honest about these things, repent of them, and run to Christ, what does God do? He justifies us right then at that moment. He wraps us and clothes us with a perfect righteousness. 
And it's one that can never be improved upon. And it's one that can never be diminished because it's the very righteousness of Christ. You see, you and I, we're going to stand before God someday and we're either going to be clothed in our own righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ. And there's only one hope. It's that we would be clothed in his righteousness. Beloved, why are Christians so timid to speak God's law in a wicked and perverse world? Because that's what, that's at least part of what we need to speak it's because we want their justification and we're not confident of our justification before God. Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We need to be bold and loving to speak the truth to the lawless, the rebellious, the disobedient, pointing them to the law and the lawgiver and I would suggest it's unloving to conceal that from them. I have a friend I haven't spoken to in a while, um, quite some time, but I have a friend who is gay, spent quite a bit of time with him over a chunk of time, and it didn't take long before I realized that it would be unloving for me to not tell him the truth about what the Bible says about his homosexuality he would let me speak honest with him. He wouldn't push me away, at least not right away. He eventually did, but he, he would let me speak honest with him. And it was clear that my friend struggled with guilt and condemnation. He really struggled with that. One time he told me that with the widespread acceptance of gay lifestyle, homosexual relations and so forth, and, and with the, the legalization of so-called same-sex marriage, that he and his friends, his, his gay friends, thought that their depression and despair and the dark he thought the darkness would leave but it didn't and there's a reason for that he's made in God's image the, the law of God is is on his conscience but you know what my friend was hearing mixed messages he was hearing from some and he was reading books that told him this and there are a lot of books out there that tell tell you this that you can be gay and a Christian, a practicing homosexual and Christian. And that's what he wanted to hear. A morally diseased world needs to hear that God's law condemns them. Let me say that again. A morally diseased world needs to hear that God's law condemns them. But listen, that's not all they need to hear. The condemning function of the law needs to be an on-ramp to the gospel. Amen. Verses 10 and 11 say this, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The law is not contrary to the gospel. Sin is right? Lawlessness is. The law is not. It leads to the gospel. Maybe some need to hear that today. Maybe you needed to hear a heavy dose of the law today because you've been sleepwalking, living a massively compromised life. 
coming to church often with some regularity, but, or maybe you've never been converted. The law leads to the gospel. It lays the groundwork for the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And it's especially good news when set against the backdrop of the gross sinfulness of humanity. This is the message Paul preached. Wherever he went, this was the message he preached. The good, ne- the good news is that God, listen, children, here's the good news. God saves disobedient kids. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Parents, isn't that amazing? You don't have to have kids that are perfectly obedient and lockstep with everything you want them to do before God can save them. God only saves disobedient children. God, here's the good news, God can save murderers. Unless you think, well, I've never killed someone. Jesus said, wait a second, hold on, hold your horses. If you have hateful thoughts toward people, you've killed them in your heart. God can save people like that. God can save porn addicts. Praise God. It's a huge epidemic in our society right now with boys and men, boys as young as 10 and men. God can save people that struggle with porn. God can save homosexuals, and he does. God can save adulterers. God can save Christ saves thieves and he saves liars and he saves the jealous and the covetous. In fact, these are the only kinds of people Christ saves. But here's the thing. He saves them and makes them new people. He saves homosexuals and he doesn't leave them the same. He saves porn addicts and he doesn't leave them the same. He saves liars and perjurers. He saves disobedient children and he changes their heart. He makes them new. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. I always stop there. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. The righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love that. You, such were some of you. Notice he doesn't say such are some of you because that's not who they are anymore. And it's not just kind of a mind over matter. They really have been changed. They really had been changed. Here's the amazing thing, right? I can say the same thing among us. I can list a whole bunch of sins that that you once were enslaved to. John came up here earlier and shared. John 
Sorry, John. He was a slave to sin. And Christ saved him. Such was John. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Guys, this is the best news in the world. And you know, we can go to church, we can come to church and kind of do this churchy thing and many never are confronted with the law. And so they kind of hang around Jesus a little bit, but they don't get too close. They don't run to him and run into him. God saves the worst kinds of sinners. Isn't that wonderful? And he does so in order to magnify and show off his grace. In fact, that's what Paul says in verse 15 of chapter one. Christ came into the world to save sinners of of whom I'm the foremost and he did so to show off his mercy. People don't need to hear how they can basically save themselves by self-discovery and self-improvement and self-esteem and all the other self things, you know. All those advertisements we see on social media, you know, you too can, whatever, you can discover the true you or whatever. That, I mean, that's not the message we need. We need to know how to become new people. I remember, I remember this very clearly. I don't know, I can't remember, well, I can't remember the day, the year, but I remember some thoughts going through my mind when Bruce Jenner, right? You guys know Bruce Jenner? He wants to be called Caitlyn now. Um, but he came out and said, you know what, I think I'm a man trapped in a woman's body and, and started very publicly going through that whole publicized transition which he, you don't transition from male, man to woman, but you know what I'm saying. And um, because he felt like he, he just didn't feel like he was, he wanted to change. He wanted to become a new person. And I remembered thinking to myself, I might have said to my wife, I wish, I hope somebody's around him and tells him, you don't need to try to become a woman. You need to be born again. You need to become a new person from the inside out. We don't need self-discovery, self-improvement, self-esteem. We need to hear the good news of a savior. So the law is good. This is the summary statement, right? And, And I hope you remember this. The law is good to show us our great sin in order to awaken us to our great need and lead us to our great Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um